So, greetings from Singapore. It's wonderful to be with you all. Really such a privilege and a pleasure to be connecting this way. Uh, I want to speak about the woman who came to anoint Jesus. It's a wonderful story that's told in all four Gospels. And it's told in a different way in each Gospel. And each Gospel draws out something unique, which is the wonder of those four Gospels. It draws out something different. And we must look for the differences, not just for the similarities, in order for us to appreciate what each Gospel is drawing out. And so in this COVID-19 season where we are asking what should we do, how should we respond, uh, this is a wonderful story to actually have a look at because the Bible says that wherever the Gospel is preached, this story about this woman anointing Jesus will be told. So it's part of the Gospel. This story encapsulates the Gospel. This story brings Jesus and those who know Jesus and those who respond to Jesus together. And we see some good responses and we see some bad responses. And so we want to learn how to respond well to Jesus. We want to get closer to Him and we want to become those who are on mission with Him, fulfilling what He plans. So in this COVID season, I love what N.T. Wright says. He says in Acts chapter 11, when the church in Antioch heard that there was going to be a famine in Jerusalem, they didn't say, why have you sent this famine? Did God send the famine? What is the meaning of this famine? They didn't say any of those things that we normally say when things go wrong. They said, well, how should we respond to this famine that God is warning us about through the prophets? And they got Barnabas and they got Paul and they made a collection and they sent them to Jerusalem with the funds to actually help the people out. And so missions was birthed from the church in Antioch. And Paul and Barnabas, these two incredible apostolic figures, were sent out firstly to respond to a need. Because the church didn't ask the big theological questions. Why did God send the famine? They asked the personal response to Jesus questions. What should we do to respond to the problem that our brothers are in? And I love that. So during COVID-19, that's what we should be doing. We should be saying, how can we respond as churches? What does post-COVID church look like? We keep hearing it's not going to be like it was before. It's going to be a new normal. Well, that depends on our response. And this story about Jesus... And the woman who anointed Jesus is an incredible story to tell us and to help us to see how should we respond to Jesus, the King of Kings? How should we respond to COVID? How should we as a church respond to problems around us? And so I have a little Bible here. It's a very old Bible, J.B. Phillips. And uh, it's his translation long before Eugene Peterson did the message. And the cover shows Jesus. It's a, it's a very common picture of Jesus that we see in the scripture, in, in uh, history. There's a common picture that we see in churches, in chapels, because it's got these four little images here. One is uh, of a, uh, an eagle, one is of an ox, one is of a man, and one is of a lion. And those four pictures, you may know, are in Ezekiel, and they're in the book of Revelation. And they're four pictures that typify and give a kind of a picture into the four Gospels. The four Gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew is the lion, the royal gospel. Matthew was a government worker. He tells it from that position of, of, royal, of, of government, of royalty. Uh, Mark was a servant of Peter and also a servant of Paul, remember. He helped uh, Paul and Barnabas when they went out. And so Mark tells it from the point of the ox, the servant, the worker. He tells it from that perspective. Uh, Luke was a doctor. Luke wrote Luke Acts. And the doctor tells the perspective from the point of view of man. How, do, how should man respond? How should a community respond? How should we respond in our manliness, our humanity? 
And then John tells the perspective of the prophet, the eagle, this apocalyptic uh, John. Apocalyptic that means pulling away the veil. It doesn't mean a disaster. This one who could pull away the veil, who could reveal what was going on behind history. There's always some spiritual force. There's always some uh, economic and, and sociological force. There are these hidden forces that are happening that drive history. And they're very integrated with the spiritual forces that are going on. And John pulls back the veil to let us see what's happening. And so let's have a look at the response from these four Gospels and how these uh, four stories actually teach us something about Jesus. So we're going to start with John, uh, the, the Gospel of John. We'll work backwards. So the Gospel of John tells us that uh, there was a, a Judas Iscariot and uh, it gives some insight that the others don't give, remember. We're looking for that which the others don't speak about. And it says when uh, uh, Jesus uh, was anointed, he complained. He said, why is this money being wasted? And why are they pouring out this year's wages of perfume? Because that's quite a common complaint, actually. But John pulls back the veil. He lets us see something that's going on here. The forces behind uh, the destruction and the uh, attack on Jesus. And uh, Judas says this, he says in John chapter 12 and verse 5, Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. That's amazing, isn't it? You see, it sounds so kind of grand. Why wasn't this money given to the poor? It's like you could hear that all over the place in the church. But actually, you see, he had another agenda. Uh, Judas had a hole in the heart. He wasn't wholehearted. Caleb, we read about, as, as um, in the book of Joshua, Joshua and Caleb were given the inheritance in the promised land, and Caleb was given his inheritance, the Bible says, because he was a, of a different heart. He was wholehearted. He said, give me the hill country, give me my inheritance, I'm going to fight for it. Judas had a hole in the heart. He said, this that Jesus is doing is wrong because he had another agenda. He wanted that money for himself. He was a thief and he thought, what a waste. Surely this money could have come to me, not to the poor. He used to not even go and give to the poor, it says. He used to actually steal it for himself. And so the Bible tells us in those other gospel accounts that Judas was the one who complained. But then it says that the other's disciples also complained. And it's amazing when one person starts to complain and seems to have a real rational reason why there should be a complaint. Others start to complain as well. The forces behind, the hidden agenda, starts to pollute others. And it starts to actually infect others. But if we see what Jesus said, we get the purity again. And Jesus said, leave her alone. She's done a beautiful thing for me. And so we see the perspective of Jesus is very often different to the perspective of man. And John shows us that. You know, John goes right back to the very beginning when he starts his gospel. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. Matthew goes back to uh, Abraham. Uh, Luke goes back to Adam. Mark goes back to the prophet Isaiah. But John goes right the way back into the mists of eternity to see that Jesus was with God and was God. And he gives us that perspective, that big picture. It's amazing. It's a wonderful perspective that he gives us. And John is, tells us that Jesus was fully God, fully man. Not quite in those words of the creed. But that's what John is showing us. He's showing us this incredible connection uh, where we, we don't kind of have, haven't figured out in church history yet. 
but that Jesus was the Son of God and the Son of Man. That Jesus was the one who was sent from heaven. That Jesus didn't perform his miracles in his own strength and power. He did everything the Father showed him to do. He did it in the power of the Holy Spirit, as Acts 10.38 says. Jesus of Nazareth went around doing good, uh, healing all those who were oppressed by the devil. Why? Because the Holy Spirit was empowering him and God was with him. He wasn't doing it as, his, as in his divinity. Jesus was a man like Adam. Without sin, Adam fell in sin. Jesus never sinned. He was tested but never sinned. But Jesus was a man. Jesus didn't walk on the water as God. Because otherwise Peter could be God. Because Peter walked on the water. Jesus walked on the water as a man. Sent from heaven. Yes, he was God. Sent from heaven. But he embraced his humanity 100%. 100% man. And it's important for that, us to know that. John tells us in John 10 that when Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. And he says, I lay down my life. And I take it up again. I've got the authority to lay it down. I've got the authority to take it up again. He had that authority to do that. But he never used that authority as God. Because the Bible tells us that the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead. Romans chapter 8 verse 11. That same spirit resides in you and I. That's why he's our savior. Not because he's God and did the miracles as God. Because he's God. The word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood as Eugene Peterson says. And so we have this big brother who was filled with the spirits totally and we too can be filled with the spirit and do the things jesus did because we've been washed in the blood and our sin has been atoned for and that's we can then be empowered to do what we have to do john pulls back the veil and he shows us the the incredible wonder jesus sent from heaven but jesus who came to breathe on them john chapter 20 breathed on the disciples as he sent them out and said as the father sent me so i'm sending you he didn't say, well, I'm divine. I could turn the water into wine. You can't. Don't even try. He didn't say that. He said, if the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. We must not think that Jesus sometimes acted in his divinity and then sometimes in his humanity. That was uh, like a Superman, Clark Kent, moving into the telephone booth, ripping off his human clothes, putting on his Superman clothes, his God clothes, and going performing miracles. That's not true. Moses performed miracles. Moses stretched out his rod and the Red Sea opened by the power of the Spirit. Paul raised the dead. Peter raised the dead by the power of the Spirit. And so we must not get confused to think Jesus acted as a divine person with divinity. Those miracles pointed to the Father's favor and the Holy Spirit's power. We see that right throughout Scripture. And John pulls back the veil for us to see that in a wonderful way. Then we get Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Luke. Luke is this wonderful gospel. Luke the physician. Luke the doctor. And when this woman anoints Jesus, the Pharisee uh, in the house says to, you know, to the people around, man, what's going on here? This is, a, this is a woman with a bad reputation. If he was a prophet and he knew what was going on, why is he allowing this? Why does Jesus allow this open display of affection and anointing his head with oil, rubbing his feet with her hair, Kissing his feet is like, this is not right, you know. And Jesus says to him, Simon, he says, I want to ask you a question. Two men, one was owed a whole lot of money to the master, one owed a very little. He said, and both were forgiven because they couldn't pay back. He says, who will love more? And then he says, Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt cancelled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. There's this wonderful thing of those who've been forgiven much, love much. And Luke shows us that. He shows us our humanity. He shows us how we get drawn into becoming followers of Jesus. Uh, we get chosen, yes, but we have to respond. We respond out of gratefulness. Uh, Cole Barth, the 
theologian used to say that uh, just like thunder follows lightning, so gratitude follows grace. And I believe that's true. But I want to say it a little differently. I want to say like thunder follows lightning, so gratitude follows mercy. And when we have mercy, when we've been forgiven, we have gratitude. And when we have gratitude and our hearts get changed because of the mercy, because of the love of God, that transformation helps us to act out in grace towards others. We become merciful because we've fallen in love with the mercy giver. And that's the grace that saves us. You see, Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16 tells us, when you come to the throne of grace, you don't get mercy. It says you, re- you don't get grace. Sorry. When you come to the throne of grace, you don't get grace. You get mercy. You receive mercy. Your sins are forgiven. You get pardon for your sins because Christ, your high priest and the Lamb of God has died in your place. And then it says, and you'll find grace in your time of need. And that's the grace that saves you, the grace that you find. So we have to respond to God. A.W. Tozer was wonderful in saying that. We need to respond to God. Our hearts need to be seeking after God. We need to be hungry and thirsty for God because of the wonder of being forgiven. Forgiveness doesn't just save you. It's the transformation that happens with gratitude that finds grace. You see, Matthew chapter 18, Jesus told a story uh, of a guy who was owed his master a million. And he went and begged him for mercy. Begged for mercy, not for grace. Begged for mercy. Because he owed a million dollars and he couldn't pay and he would have to mortgage his home and his wife and kids would have to go into slavery. And the master says, okay, I'm going to pardon you, go. And he walks out of there and he finds a guy who owes him $10. He chokes him and says, pay, guy can't pay, he throws him into jail. The master gets to hear about it, calls that man back and he says, you wicked servant. That's a man who's been pardoned. A man who received mercy, still wicked because he never found grace. Still wicked, not transformed because he never found grace. And the master throws him into the dungeon. You see, when we've been forgiven, we fall in love with the mercy giver. And gratitude wells up within us to say, I want to be like the mercy giver. I want to be like Jesus. I want to be like him in every single aspect of his life. I want to be empowered by his spirit. I want to love the father like he loved the father. I want to love the people like he loved the people. I want to build the church and be on mission like he was on mission. And that's the grace that saves you. It may get you to heaven. Yes, absolutely it does. But it's not just that. It transforms earth. And it brings heaven to earth, which is the goal of our mission. We're not just trying to fill in as little as we can. Do the minimum to get to heaven. We're trying to say, I'm in love with the mercy given. I want everybody to experience what I've experienced because I've been forgiven. I've been born again. I get a second chance. And Luke tells that. He, he, he zeroes in on our humanity and our community. Not only that... We read here in the Mark. Mark is very interesting because he brings out a little fact that all of them hint at, but he brings it out differently. And uh, he speaks about the poor. And in Mark chapter 14, verse 7, uh, Jesus says, she's done something beautiful for me. He says, the poor you will have with you always. And that's echoed in the other Gospels as well. But then he says this, and you can help them anytime you want. That's not in every other Gospel. Mark only brings it out. You can help them anytime you want. Because you see, Deuteronomy 15, which is the great chapter on the Jubilee, setting the slaves free, letting the um, ecology, letting the land rest. It's both our boundaries, our ecological boundaries and our social boundaries. The Jubilee actually affects them both. It's wonderful. The problems we're dealing with today, these ESG problems, environment, social and governmental, these things are addressed in the Jubilee. It's wonderful. 
Uh, somebody said Leviticus 25 makes Das Kapital look tame. Leviticus 25, the Jubilee chapter, makes Karl Marx and his theology of economics look tame. It's not, not radical enough. God is radical. And in the Jubilee, they set the slaves free. But in that chapter, it also says that the, the poor you will have with you always. So then always be, pray, be prepared to have something to give them and something to do for them. Always be prepared to actually have a, a, a way of lifting the poor out of their poverty. Because the same chapter says there should be no poor among you. And so some people I've heard them say, even Jesus said, the poor you'll have with you always, so don't even try. They're always going to be there. That's not how the gospel is presented. The gospel is presented as Jesus saying, the poor you'll have with you always, and you can always do something for them. You can always do something for them. You have a ministry opportunity every hour of every day, because the poor are there always, is what Jesus is saying. Not forget about them, it's an impossible big black hole. The Bible is written in such a way that we are there to engage them, to lift them out, to draw them in as partners on this gospel journey. Leviticus speaks about that so much. It says if you have a field and you own a field, then it says don't go and glean the whole field. Don't go and harvest the whole field. It says leave something of that field. Leave it there for the poor, the widows, the orphans, the aliens. If you have a company, if you're making money, then Jesus is telling you, leave something where the poor can also get involved to make money. You don't have to give handouts. You involve them in the process of production. You draw them in and you train them and you help them to become equipped to become a different kind of people. And there's always an opportunity for such things to happen. It's amazing. Something has been lost when we start to see the poor as, yeah, they, they deserve it. And they, they are just, you know, they, they are lazy. No, they're victims of systems. We've got to draw back the veil and see there's a system behind the problems. There are always exceptions, but largely there's a system, there's a history behind the problems. And we've got to address the history because Jesus addressed the history. He said, always be ready. That's wonderful. Companies are doing this a lot more today. Paul Polman was the CEO of Unilever until just recently. And he, he brought a sustainability program into Unilever to try and create a sustainable economy to try and reach out to the supply chain and all right the whole full length of the supply chain and try to actually help those who were farmers and producers right at the beginning of the supply chain and what happened to Paul Polman is he was in the Mumbai hotel uh, terrorist attack you may have seen that movie Hotel Mumbai it's a great movie I mean it's pretty scary but it's real and he was in that terrorist attack with his staff and he lived obviously and he was so grateful and he, he saw the connection there between terrorism and poverty. Poverty creates terrorism. And he said, me as a CEO of one of the large companies, I think at the time he was a, a CEO of Nestle, but then he became CEO of Unilever afterwards. He said, as a CEO of a large company, I have a social responsibility. I can bring peace on earth if every company does what I'm prepared to do. And we stop competing with each other to make prices and things as cheap as we can and squeeze the supply chain. But we start to help those at the end of the supply chain, treat them well, bring them into the whole system of, of victory, help them to become partners with us and, and create a sustainable economy. And Paul Pullman did that after he realized actually terrorism and poverty are so closely linked. Of course they are. Of course they are. If you want peace on earth, you've got to deal with economic poverty. You've got to deal with social injustice. And so it's a great thing for us to remember. Actually, after that uh, attack, Pullman took his staff back to the hotel uh, some months later. 
and they had a banquet where they, they, his staff and himself, they hosted and fed the hotel staff to thank them. I just think that's, that is just like Jesus would have done. It's just thankfulness. You see, thankfulness. Thank you for life. Thank you, God, that I'm alive. And it transformed his life to say, I'm going to find grace in my time of need to be like the one I'm thankful to. I'm not sure what his philosophy is. But you see, wherever there's thankfulness, there's a transformation. You see it with your children. You see it with your friends. You see it in your company. You see it in your school. And we see it with Jesus. When we are thankful for what he's done for us, we can't help but to be motivated differently. That's the gospel, my friends. And that's what Mark tells us. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So we've done John, we've done uh, Luke, we've done Mark, and then Matthew. Matthew is the royal gospel. It's the gospel from this tax collector called to be a disciple, and he engages with Jesus. And Matthew, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, as you may know, the synoptic gospels repeat each other. They say the same kind of thing. And so Matthew says the same kinds of things. But actually, Matthew is introduced a little differently. And when Matthew introduces this story, this account, that will be told wherever the gospel is preached, in Matthew 26, verse 1, it says, When Jesus had finished saying all these things, He said to His disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Matthew introduces that with that text. The Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Son of man is a very veiled name. Actually, son of man doesn't mean son of Adam. He's human. Son of man was the name that was given to the kings. In Daniel 7, it said, one like a son of man was there in heaven and he was worshipped and he was given the kingdom. Son of man actually is a title of the divine. <laughs> and son of, son of God is the title given to kings like David. David and Solomon were sons of God. So it's a kind of a very veiled way. And, and the kingdom is a veiled movement. It's a movement that Jesus started. The kingdom of God is now among you. But it's a movement. It's a grassroots movement of the Holy Spirit. It's a way to transform society and life by the power of the Spirit. It's a wonderful thing. So the kingdom isn't as people think. Jesus will come riding in on a white horse and establish His kingdom. It's not a kind of apocalyptic, uh, left-behind, Armageddon thing. Jesus comes riding in on a white horse in the book of Revelation and the word of God is in his hand, not a sword. The sword is the word. He's going to transform the world with the word. When Jesus stood before Pilate, he said, my kingdom's not of this earth. It's different. He says, else we would fight. My disciples would fight. So, so the kingdom of God is a movement. It's a socio-economic movement empowered by the Holy Spirit that has political implications. And so Jesus is not coming in on a white horse with a sword in his hand to bring violent destruction of his enemies. Jesus is not leading a revolution, as he told Peter, when Peter chopped off the high priest's servant's ear in the garden. Jesus is bringing a different kind of kingdom. He told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. It's a different kind of kingdom. It's a kingdom that is the kingdom of heaven, yes, but it's a kingdom that comes and invades earth every day since Jesus walked on the planet. The kingdom of God is arriving. Because it transforms our hearts by the Holy Spirit and empowers us to act like those who are grateful because we've fallen in love with the mercy giver and now we're giving grace everywhere we go. We're changing society to help others also to be part of that kingdom. We don't kill them and get them out of the way. We draw them in with loving kindness and we preach the gospel, the good news. Tell them that there is a way for them to be transformed and saved. And that's the kingdom. That's what we want to see happen in our lives. And so Matthew, Mark, Luke, John tell these four different stories. The thing I love 
about Matthew, though, the, the, the royal uh, gospel, is when you think about Jesus as being a king and having a kingdom. You know, every king is anointed. David was anointed to be king. Uh, Psalm speaks about how the oil was poured over his head and came running down over his beard like over the high priest. And uh, the high priest was anointed exactly. So, so those who were in service of God in the Old Testament were anointed with oil. And they'd pour the oil over the head and the oil was symbolic of the Holy Spirit dripping all over them, saturating them, empowering them for this office, for this task, for this mission. Jesus, the King of Kings, said about this woman, she's anointing me for burial. But she's not, not only anointed for burial, she anointed him to be king. Because he said, if I'm lifted up, I will be exalted. John chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. And that lifting up to the cross is exalted, enthroned. Jesus said, this is my coronation. The cross is the coronation of Christ. He is being enthroned. And when was he anointed to be king? By that woman who anointed him. Because after that, he went to the cross was buried. And so I love it. I love it that Jesus, the King of Kings, our Savior, didn't get a high priest to anoint him. Didn't get a prophet to come and anoint him. Didn't get the great leaders of the day to come and anoint him. He got a woman who had a bad reputation, who they thought was a prostitute. He got some, one of the lowest of the low of society to come and anoint him as King. You see, Jesus wants us involved in his life. Jesus wants us involved in his mission. He's altogether wonderful. I just love him. In the book of Acts, it says that when those disciples uh, were, were uh, call, called up for preaching, you know, they were like, why are these guys preaching? And we're unhappy with their preaching. And um, Acts chapter 4. And so Peter and John had been preaching and they uh, were in trouble. And it says this about the, about the people, the leaders of the day. It says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. You see, it wasn't that they saw they were unschooled. When they saw the courage, then they realized they were unschooled. And then they realized they'd been with Jesus. But it was their courage that stood out. And I believe in this day, COVID-19 day, God is looking for men and women of courage. He's looking for people of courage who will say, I know Jesus. I appreciate what he's done for me. I've fallen in love with the mercy giver. And I'm going to have the courage to do whatever it takes to transform the church, to transform the community I live in, to transform the city that I'm part of, to bring transformation, to bring a different way of thinking, not with the violence of a sword, not with, with forcing people to do what's right, but by touching their hearts and letting them know there's a king who loves them, who gave his life for them, and they can be part of that kingdom. They can be part of that movement to enthrone Jesus in their lives and in their community and let His will and His way start to be done. We have to start influencing business. We have to start influencing social conditions. We have to start doing these things that we have heard about and doing what the Old Testament always pointed to the fact that Christ would do. But we don't do it with one great big blast. We don't wait till one great big rapture and all get moved away. We say, God help us to be transformed, to have the courage to do the things you want us to do. I want to read you a little poem as we end. It's called The Mercy Seat, and it's inspired by him. It says, Your throne, they say, is made of gold. To enter the throne room, you must be very bold. You rule, they say, in power and might. Your throne is surrounded by an angel army of light. To enter, they say, you must do it God's way. You have to bow and sing.
but don't look at the king. But when I came before the throne of grace, you said, look up, son. I want to see your face. You said, come sit at my right hand. You can't feast at my banquet while you stand. So I sat down and stared at the mercy seat. But you were not there. You did not sit to eat. Then I felt warm tears. Oh, how sweet. The King of glory is weeping and washing my feet. We serve such an incredible King. When the disciples went out, it says they preached Jesus. Acts chapter 8. They preached Jesus. Our message is Jesus. Our gospel is Jesus. We must preach Jesus. And it says that this gospel, this story of this woman anointing Jesus will be told wherever the gospel is preached. I want us to say, God, help us to respond in a way that is wholehearted, that thinks of others, that embraces people in love and starts to transform the society and the church and the city where we live. God bless you. Amen.